0: i'm andrew schwartz and you're listening to the truth of the matter a podcast by csis where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on to help us get to the truth of the matter about what's really going on on the ground in ukraine we have with us today vivian salama who covers national security for the wall street journal based here in washington she's covered u.s foreign policy and national security issues for nearly two decades and has reported from more than 75 countries. Vivian, welcome to the show. I know you just returned from a month-long reporting stint in Ukraine, and you've traveled to Ukraine on multiple occasions following Russia's invasion, so you're really well-positioned to speak to what's happening there on the ground now.
1: It's great to be here, first of all. And yeah, I just returned from my latest stint there. You know, Ukraine continues to be one of the most miraculously beautiful places on Earth, especially with the sunflowers blooming this summer. But obviously, um, they're going through challenging times.
0: Well, tell me about that. Your latest reporting from the ground is pretty extraordinary. How do Ukrainians believe they're doing against Russia. Is the increased support from the United States having a direct impact, encountering the Russian offensive and blunting advances? You know, you've reported on what they're doing using HIMARS and so forth. W- what are you seeing there?
1: So I, uh, let me just start by saying um, when I first arrived in early July, my, one of my first stops was at the defense ministry. I interviewed the defense minister. It was my first time interviewing him since the war started. I interviewed him back in January and the conversation was very, very different. I can get into that in a moment, but this is
0: Reznikov you're talking about, correct? This
1: is Reznikov, yep, Oliski Rez- Reznikov. He emphasized that the Heimars had been a game changer for them. At that point, they were on the ground being used by forces for barely two weeks, and already they said that they were seeing some differences, allowing Ukrainian forces to edge forward a little bit in this very slow grind of a war. It is important to let Listeners know, you know, we keep on talking about this being a war that's heavily based on artillery. So what does that mean? It essentially means you're shooting missiles from really long distances, and it makes it very hard to fight a war that way. I mean, this is like World War II style fighting where you don't have – you're not using – some of the more modern technologies that allow you to get closer to your enemies and allow for specific precision per se. But obviously the long-range missiles that we have, the systems we have, are much more modernized than they were in World War II days, and so you can have precision strikes if you have the right kind of long-range artillery. And so that was the one thing that they had been begging and begging the U.S. for for so long. And the U.S. was very reticent in the beginning because they were so worried about how the Ukrainians would use it. A, they weren't really, they didn't have the proper training for it, and it takes some time to train them. They're getting crash courses now on it. And really, it's it's like three weeks versus two or three months, which it should be. And then just the fear that they might fire some U.S. missile over the border into Russia, which is another issue that we can get into. That was something that Washington was very concerned about. And the Ukrainians had to really fight and assure them, listen, you can see how well we're doing on the battlefield without these long range missiles. Give it to us. We'll show you what we can do. And so it's been over a month now since they've they have had them, actually, probably closer to two months now since they've had them. And it is making a difference on most of the front lines, particularly in the south, where President Zelensky in late June declared that they were going to start a new offensive to gain territory in the south. We are definitely seeing that the HIMARS that the U.S. has sent is making a difference because they were so far away from Russian positions that it was only going to change with those long range missiles. And so they're now able to edge forward and kind of recapture territory that had been taken from them early in this war thanks to those long-range missiles that the U.S. and others, by the way, they're, they're getting them from the Brits as well. The Germans are now flirting with some uh, possible possible options. And so, you know, they are getting it from others as well. But the U.S. HIMARS, you know, everyone in, on all the battlefields in Ukraine, tell me that those are the game changers.
0: So let's talk about that for a second. You alluded to this just a second ago. The HIMARS the long range missiles that they now have, they come with some restrictions. And what are those restrictions and and how difficult has that been for the Ukrainians to operate?
1: Well, first of all, they've only gotten a handful of them. I mean, when I left at the end of July, they still only had about eight in operation, and there were four more that were coming into theater. And so 12 HIMARS, I mean, you know, better than none is what they'll tell you, but 12 is still just not enough, and they keep on asking for more. And so literally the first limitation is probably just the quantity they have. And then you have to also train the Ukrainian forces on these systems, and And they're doing it in about three weeks' time, but it needs about two or three months. And so everyone sort of crosses their fingers and hopes that they can get it. So far, so good. Although, you know, I think if you ask certain U.S. military officials, they'll tell you, you know, there's going to be a lot of wear and tear on those machines because of the fact that they don't have the necessary kind of extensive training. But they're they're able to fire them. They're able to make them work. And so right now, we don't have the luxury of time. Let's just do this. And then the third is the uh, geographic limitations as far as where they can fire these missiles. So one of the front lines that I spent some time in uh, right toward the end before I left, so we're talking about two weeks ago now, is in Kharkiv, in the northeastern part of the country. So obviously the east is very vulnerable. You have Donbass, which is the battle has not been going well, and they're really hoping these HIMARS can change the situation. But the Russians have just been so aggressive at, at trying to capture territory there and they've they've been very successful at it so far the ukrainians have really struggled there so in Kharkiv, Kharkiv was, is still largely in Ukrainian control, but there are segments of the region, the oblast as it's called, that are um, in the hands of the Russians. And the problem is, and this is something Reznikov, the defense minister told me right at the start of this trip, and I saw it for my, with my own eyes when I went out there, is that not only do the Russians have very strategic advantages in places like Kharkiv and Donbas internally in Ukrainian territory because they're able to monopolize, let's say, river crossings for supply routes and things like that. They're also firing at Ukrainian forces from across the border in Russia because of the geographic location. And so I was going out there to these Ukrainian forces who are up in Kharkiv saying, you know, here you have m sevens, for example. Not even HIMARS. You have m sevens, which are another, you know, heavy artillery piece from the United States. But you're getting fired at from Belgorod or somewhere else in Russia. And you're not allowed to fire Western weapon systems back at them. What do you do? And they just kind of like throw their hands up and say, well, our hands are tied. And this is a huge problem that is under a lot of debate here in, in, in Washington because there is a camp that says, you know what? We don't need that. It's provocative. It's a provocation for us to start firing U.S. made weapon systems at Russian territory, even if we're not the ones pulling the trigger, it's still provocative. We don't want our name on any of those missiles that are being fired or our flag on any of those missiles being fired into Russia. And then you have another camp that says it's fair game. If they're firing at the Ukrainians, they should be able to fire back with the weapon systems we gave them. And so this is an ongoing debate. But the issue of provocation has been so sensitive here in Washington throughout this conflict that, you know, what I hear from Ukrainians all the time is When the U.S. delivers, they really deliver big. It's an earthquake, as one defense official told me. But so when the U.S. delivers, it's like an earthquake, according to one defense official that I spoke to. But... On the other hand, they move a little bit slower than say the Brits and everything like that. And so it's no wonder why when I travel throughout Ukraine, the one thing I keep on hearing is Boris Johnson is a great man. And this is literally, <laughs> this is literally after he stepped down as prime minister and wow. I'm still hearing what a hero Boris Johnson is. And that's how he's seen among Ukrainians, especially with the Ukrainian military, because they believe the Brits have delivered so quickly on their promises. When the Americans deliver, they deliver big, an earthquake, like that official said. But they take time because there's so much deliberation. There's so much anxiety about we don't want to poke the bear. We don't want to provoke Russia. And so that's sort of where things stand right now. But, you know, there are limitations. And so they're, they're thrilled and grateful to have these long-range weapon systems. They're trying to get additional ones that can go further, that can fire further. But the line is drawn in the sand as far as where they can fire those missiles. And so it, it, it does present some challenges for those forces.
0: You know, it's an extraordinary line that the Ukrainians need to walk, but it's also an extraordinary line that the Biden administration and the United States Congress is trying to walk. Because like you said, you know, the enemy is in Russian territory. They're on their own territory. And so to get at the enemy, which is firing back in to Ukraine, they need to cross that border using that artillery. But like you said, their hands are tied.
1: The Biden administration and the U.S. Congress are very happy to help. And they have done an extraordinary job so far and the Ukrainians will be the first ones to tell you that but with every single piece of aid there's usually a little asterisk and some fine print underneath it about how these weapon systems can be used by whom and against which geographic areas and so that is something that comes up when we are on the road and and remember there's a you know we're talking 12 HIMARS now they're going to be getting more but that's a very small number and I'm talking to frontline fighters who have never had laid a finger on anything but Soviet-era weapons to this day. And the idea of them in the middle of this war, then switching over to U.S.-made weapon systems, which are far more high-tech, really sophisticated in some cases, is so daunting to them. That they would almost prefer to stay with the Soviet era weapons that they know because they can't they they're afraid that they might be at a disadvantage if they have to learn some new system in the middle of this intense fighting. And there is very intense fighting going on. I mean, I, I it's a, a kind of remarkable reality that the country now faces, because in Kiev, everything seems like it's back to normal. You, you've got, you know, live music at the ca- at the bars and the restaurants and people are lining the outdoor cafes, kind of very European style. Everywhere you go, people are outside having drinks, having food. And really, the city has largely started to look resemble what it was before the war. But you start driving outside of the city, first of all, around Kiev in the areas that were completely just obliterated, crushed. I mean, there, there are cities that are gone, Bucha and Irpin and those places are gone. I mean, they're demolished. But then you go down to the south and you go down far to the east, and there's not a single night where we weren't woken up by explosions, And so the war definitely rages on. And so when you live through that, even when you're far away from the explosions and you can still hear them raging in the distance... You understand what these fighters are telling you when they say we are in the thick of it. And the idea of now having to learn a totally new weapon system for us, even though we know those weapon systems are probably better, is daunting. And so there are a lot of challenges facing these fighters, even as they start making gains in the South. In the East, it's another story. The East is going to be a challenge for them for a long time.
0: In your reporting You're really on the ground with these guys, and some of the photos that have accompanied your stories are just extraordinary. I mean, rarely, I think, have Americans and people around the world been brought so closely into the war. I mean, literally, are these guys like spreading out a manual and trying to figure out how to use this stuff? Are they, you know, what's it like for them on the ground? We see, you know, one view from pretty far away, but you were right there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I, not only was I right there, I think my ears are still ringing from the explosions because uh, when we went to Kharkiv, we we got within a couple of feet of the M triple uh, seven as it was being fired. They fired about twelve rounds at at Russian targets while we were there.
0: And that's and that's Kharkiv. an advanced howitzer, is that what that is?
1: Exactly, and it is loud. Let me tell you, I mean, the, they we knew that they were going to start firing just as we were arriving, but we. We kind of walked right into it when the first one exploded, and we didn't have a, a minute to protect our ears, and so we were sort of blown back by the by the blast because it's so powerful. But for the rest of them, we were able to, and they actually came and gave us some like you know ear protectors, which was very sweet of them. I, you know, my photographer was the only one who could really use that because he his hands were occupied, and he was literally like under the barrel as they were firing it. I mean, the photographers are are, are incredible in these situations. As a as a writer, I. I I can be a few feet back and watch the watch the whole thing, take it all in. These are very, very heavy weapon systems. I mean, in this case, in in the geography from from frontline to frontline is so different that it and it's been so relevant. And I've tried to capture the different geographic features of every single part of the country because we're talking about a massive, massive country now. In the east, it's a lot of forest right now. Obviously, it's summer. And so the leaves are, you know, And it's all the trees are leafy. And so they're able to kind of disguise an already kind of khaki green howitzer under the trees. And then they 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 throw branches on it when they're not using it. They sort of lower it down and throw branches to, to to protect it. You've got about eight to 12 guys operating just one missile system. Because it's so massive and you, we watched them as they were sort of uh, tinkering with the missiles, trying to get the caps off of them and get them ready to be fired. And the whole entire process is pretty interesting. There's one guy in particular, the gunner. I remember him. I could see him in my, you know, very like red, red hair and just a chin strap beard. And he was just sitting there with his notebook next to the system looking through like binocular type, like a scope. And taking notes about the coordinates for their targets. And then he would tell them, move it to the left, move it up, move it down, you know, and he, he would do that for a good few minutes, kind of trying to get it exactly where they want it to hit. And then with almost no warning, he'd say contact and everybody would duck down and cover their ears. And one guy who, who didn't have the luxury of covering his ears, bless him. I'm sure he can't hear a thing anymore would pull a chain and and it would fire and this thing would shake the earth. And so and you, we know that they would hit their targets or at least hit the ground about maybe 25 seconds to 30 seconds later. And so they would really didn't want to tell us because for operational reasons what they were targeting, but they would fire 12 at a time. And then we all had to dive into trenches after that because we expected return fire. And so, you know, we got into the soggy trenches with them. It was pouring rain at that point, I remember, and, you know, trying to work with them. And they were just busy as hell. I mean, you know an active frontline when you see one because, you know, when they're not active, the guys are sitting around smoking their cigarettes, they're chilling out, you know, they're joking around with us. But in that one in particular, because of the fact that they had just fired 12 rounds, we were expecting incoming. And so they were like all running around. It was hard to get them for two seconds just to ask them some questions. And and that's sort of the reality of it. Um, in the South, I, I will just say really quickly, I saw a lot of traumatized fighters. There have been some really, really ugly days um, in the South. And now they are making gains. That's actually where they're making gains is in the South. And so one would think that they would have had a little bit more optimism and up, been upbeat, but they just saw really ugly days right as we were arriving there. And they had just received some mars that were starting to make the difference for them. But prior to that, they were getting massacred. And unlike in the east where you have thick forests, in the south you're talking about mostly fields of wheat, sunflowers, and watermelon. So you have these huge open areas with very little cover. And one of the things that the Russians have proven really good at is drone warfare. And they're very good at, at digging trenches as well, is what I kept on hearing from these these fighters. And so between their use of drones, their use of jamming systems so that the Ukrainians cannot fly drones back, and their ability to dig trenches, they were doing really well in the South for a long time. And the Ukrainians were just getting their positions hammered. Constantly, and that's why they had to keep such a big distance, and that's why they desperately needed these long-range missile systems to fight, especially in the south. They were really going to make the difference. Like I said, their hands are tied with the HIMARS in the northeast because a lot of these missiles are coming in from a lot of the fires coming in from from Russian territory, and they can't fire back with U.S. systems. But they can do it in the south, and so they are starting to make progress.
0: So. When you're with them, like you just described, and there's a lot of action and the the rockets go off, the missiles are launched. I understand they won't tell you what the target was, but will they tell you whether it was successful or not?
1: They did in a sort of passing way. And I had it in my story where I was kind of pestering them saying, uh, because I heard one of them say, we got it. And, you know, actually, I'm working through a translator. Um, we, we work through fixers um, who are amazing, brave, low, you know, Ukrainians who join us in the field. And my fixer told me because I'd been asking and he told me the one guy over there said we got him. So, you know, we do we do find out somehow or another. I mean, they're very happy to gloat about it, maybe in, unofficially when they do get their targets. But they're also very sober in knowing that just because they hit a target doesn't mean they're not about to receive some ugly incoming. And so and they They've they've kind of been through this before, this cycle before of like don't get too cocky because, you know, anything could happen at any moment. And so I found them to be pretty pretty humble about it, if if nothing else. They're happy when they make gains, but they know that this is gonna be a really long, slow grind of a war. And so they're not celebrating anything yet.
0: And they know that danger's constantly around the corner.
1: I mean, well, this is sort of the psyche of the Ukrainians even getting into this. So I mentioned earlier that I had interviewed the defense minister, Reznikov, about three weeks before the war started. And one thing that he said to me at the time when I told him, you know, these are grave warnings, this looks imminent, what are you going to say to this? And he told me I was buying into the hysteria of of the American government. And this was something that the Ukrainian government had been saying over and over again, trying to calm their people down because... Because they didn't want some economic backlash. President Zelensky himself telling everyone, remain calm. There's nothing to worry about. You know, we have this under control. We know our enemy etc. And so when I sat with him this time, it, it was the first time I'd seen him one-on-one since the war started. And I said, you know, you told me that I was buying into the hysteria. What do you say now? And he, so he started to explain. He said, well, you have to understand, we've been living with this threat for eight years, and we don't want anyone to get complacent and think that the threat had gone away or had changed in any way. To us, the threat that we faced in 2014 you know, when the Russians annexed Crimea and began to foment some discord in Donbass, they said, you know, we've been, we've been struggling with the Russian occupation. And invasion since then. And to somehow color this as something different for us is not the right approach. And so that is our thinking. I know the US thinks differently and the European governments, other European governments think differently, but that's how we approach things. And so that is sort of their, their way of looking at it. Whether or not it was the right or wrong way, that's not for me to say, but they insist that the threat has never diminished from across their border. And so what they are facing now was just what they call the Great War. They were always expecting the Great War, but they believe in themselves to have been at war with Russia all this time, and that is true.
0: And is that the biggest difference that you've seen between the Ukrainian attitudes towards the war and the U.S. attitudes towards the war?
1: Well, that's probably a longer conversation because the U.S. attitude toward the war will be very interesting to uh, to analyze, I think, in another six months to a year. When we get into an election cycle and we are sort of taken away from sort of the daily focus on Ukraine that we had seen probably for the first five uh, months of this war, then it will be a question of whether or not the public pressure is such that it will continue to push U.S. leaders to continue fighting for Ukraine or whether or not the leadership is sort of deferred to European countries like the French and the Germans who, you know, believe this to be a a threat in their backyard and they have to take it very seriously. The U.S. geographically being more physically removed from the threat of Russian invasion and Russia's threats toward Europe It will be interesting to see if we can sustain that. And so far, the Biden administration insists that they will remain committed and support Ukraine for as long as possible. But whether or not that is actually going to continue in practice, and particularly in Congress, if we see Republicans, for example, taking the majority for whether or not they will continue to justify the expense to their constituents in the long term. And even though national security, something like, the expenses that uh, the the money that goes to support Ukraine, for example, is obviously coming from a very different basket than the money that would go to alleviate economic woes here in the country. It's a hard sell to most voters who don't understand how that works. And so that is going to be a challenge for lawmakers in the coming months. And it will be very interesting to see if they continue to justify U.S. support for Ukraine in the long term. One thing that someone said to me recently that resonated with me because I I do think it's very true. They said the most patient person in this conflict is Vladimir Putin. He believes that the absence of this Ukrainian territory as part of his larger orbit, the Russian orbit, is existential for Russia. And so he will rest at nothing to continue with this. And I think we've seen that even since 2014, where he has just continuously had an eye on capturing more Ukrainian territory. The Ukrainians know this. They've warned us about it, and they do understand the threat. And it's just a matter of keeping the same motivation and the same sort of pace of support from Western countries. Most will tell you that you'd probably see greater support continued by the Europeans because the Europeans believe this to be a very imminent and immediate threat to them, to their security. Whether or not Washington continues with its pace of support remains to be seen.
0: Vivian, thank you so much for sparing a few minutes today to talk with us about this really incredible view into your reporting and some of the things that you saw and heard while you were there. Thanks so much.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more.